Today the reading comes from 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 9 to 18. And it's headed, the Lord appears to Elijah. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. It's an uh, interesting journey writing the sermons for this series. So I find myself um, asking the questions that God is asking of the people we're walking alongside. So, uh, where have I come from and where am I going? Uh, Hagar has set herself on a certain trajectory and, and it's not going to end in a good place. And what trajectory am I on and am I trusting and listening to God? Or uh, the following week, what's your name? What's your identity? What's your character? What is your inclination when you find your back to the wall? Is it to trust in yourself or is it to trust in God? The following week, um, what's in your hand? So quickly we ask ourselves, what's not in my hand? And we give ourselves an excuse for why we can sit back, why we don't need to lean back in. And I'm asking myself, is that me in this particular moment? I think I could cope with all of those questions. Today's question is a little bit harder still. Why are you here? And it implies that Elijah is where he is for the wrong reasons, or he's in the wrong place, or he's gone to where he's gone to with kind of duplicitous motives. Why are you there? What, what, what are you doing? 
and, and why aren't you somewhere else? Or why are you there and not doing what you're supposed to be doing when you're there? And those are challenging kind of questions. So let's kind of step back and, and uh, just journey with Elijah. Uh, Elijah is a prophet in the northern part of Israel, um, a few generations after David. Things are going terribly. Uh, Ahab is the king, and he's married a queen from the Gentiles. Uh, and she has brought with her foreign gods, and Baal worship is now common. And Jezebel, together with the Israelites, have actually been persecuting and killing the prophets. And you can imagine that Elijah feels very unsettled, very unsafe about all of this. And he's probably wondering to himself, why, why is God allowing this? Uh, and, and then we kind of get the Mount Carmel incident. It's fascinating. God doesn't tell Elijah to go to Mount Carmel. I wonder if Elijah is almost trying to force God's hand. Come on, God, things are going pear-shaped here. Let's have a showdown. And, and I'm, in some sense, not only going to challenge the prophets of Baal, but I'm actually going to challenge you, God, to reveal your strength and your hand. Uh, Israel is not revealing their hand. They're actually sitting on the fence, a foot in both camps. And Elijah says to the Israelites on Mount Carmel, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. It's kind of a shrewd move, isn't it? When there's two would-be powers that are about to have some kind of a showdown... Maybe there's some smarts about kind of just stepping back and saying, I'm just going to let the dust settle and see how things fall out, and then I will throw my lot in with whoever happens to win, whoever happens to come out on top. Well, you can't respond to God that way, but you can see the, the, the insight, right? I mean, that, they've now got uh, a queen who seems to... Uh, Tell her husband what to do. The, the, the tide is changing, and so uh, they're kind of sitting back and waiting and seeing what happens. But it reveals the shallowness and the lack of faith that Israel has in God. So uh, Elijah comes up with a binary showdown, right? There isn't two choices, there's only one. Either God is God or the Baals are God. Which one are you going to worship? Let's have a test. And so, you know the story. Uh, 450 prophets of Baal, uh, they've got their sacrifice there, they're praying to their gods, they're cutting themselves, Elijah's making fun of them, where is your God? Maybe he's asleep, maybe he's gone to the toilet. Uh, and um, it happens for half the day and there's no result. And then Elijah says, right, come on, uh, cover it with water again, again. 
uh, and then he prays to God, and God responds, and there's a great display, a great revelation of not only God's power and God's judgment, but also his mercy. He's willing to uh, sacrifice a cow so that the people might be freed, and the response is uh, a beautiful national repentance, uh, a national affirmation. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And then Elijah flips the tables on Jezebel and he commands the people, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let them get away, now let's put them to the sword. And they slaughter them. And Elijah and we, if we're first-time readers of the text, are thinking, great, this is awesome. We've turned a corner. Except, of course, that's not where things go. Uh, so what happens now is um, there's been a drought for three years. Uh, Elijah says to the king Ahab, see, God is God, and now he's going to bring some rains. Uh, Ahab gets on his uh, chariot and starts riding home. Uh, and Elijah, an old prophet, somehow spirit-empowered, beats him to his house uh, and kind of speaks to him again. Uh, and then we get this encounter. Jezebel, this foreign wicked queen, hears what's happened and she sends a message to Elijah saying, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like the life of the prophets of Baal that you just killed. Let's just get our head into that, um, into that threat. Those gods who couldn't wake up, were impotent, couldn't do anything on the mountain, may those gods do something to me if I don't punish you. That's an empty threat. That's just been proved to be meaningless. Why the heck would he be worried about Jezebel saying something like that? And yet, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. This is a story about the human experience, isn't it? I mean, we imagine to ourselves that if life went from a peak to a higher peak and then an even higher peak still, you know, well, that'd be fantastic. That's the way things are meant to go. If that happened, then the kingdom would come and Israel would be believing and God would be honoured and, you know, that, that's how future is meant to unfold. But actually opposite tends to happen. We have mountaintop experiences and threats. Opposition. And we get sideswiped by the unexpected. Well, Elijah does run for his life and he goes and sits under a tree and he licks his wounds and he feels sorry for himself. And he says this, he prays that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. 
Now, in the ancient world, there's no such thing as atheism. Everyone believes in gods. And so Elijah has only two choices. Either I believe in the gods of the nations or I believe in the God of Israel. And he can't believe in the gods of the nations. But he wants to tap out from being on God's team. And so he hasn't got the option of saying, I'm going to stop believing in you. His way of saying that is, actually, I'd, I'd rather just die. And it's a profound vote of no confidence in God. We had this mountaintop experience, this, this kind of... Uh, moment that, well, maybe even Elisha thinks somehow he kind of uh, set that up. You know, if we'd have gone from strength to strength to strength, things would be going good. But it turns out this wicked Jezebel and the evil and the rebellion, it's so all-pervasive that it's just pointless. I've tried God and you're not pulling your weight. And so I'm just going to give up and I might as well die because there's no point anymore. Sometimes, after we've focused and busted our guts and had a win, the very next challenge, even if it's not a hurdle that's too high, trips us up and we want to throw in the towel. Well, an angel comes and says, uh, no, I won't take you up on that offer. Instead, you have to eat. So he eats and drinks. Uh, and then the angel says, no, you haven't eaten and drink enough. You've got a long journey. Have some more. So he does. And then he's nourished. He's refreshed off to Mount Horeb. It takes him, so we read, 40 days and 40 nights. And we're thinking to ourselves, oh, there's that number again. We know that number. This is some type of a, a testing experience, right? Israel was in the desert for 40 years and failed. Jesus was in the desert for 40 days and passed, right? This is some kind of a test. Except to get from the Jezreel Valley to Mount Horeb, which is where he was and where he was going, is about five, six, seven days. So how come he took 40 What's going on there? Well, I guess there's a couple of possible explanations. It's meant to be 40 because it is a season of spiritual testing. Or perhaps Elijah's dawdling? Dragging the chain? Mumbling and grumbling and feeling sorry for himself? Telling himself why this is all so unfair? maybe even hoping that he'll starve and somehow his death wish will come true. And where's he en route to? To Mount Horeb. Other name? Mount Sinai. The place where God 
calls his people to worship him. Come out of slavery and come and worship me. The place where he promises and he speaks to them. I'm the God who's freed you. Now live this way. It's also the place later where Moses will go and sit in a cleft and God will pass by Moses and Moses will see God's back and his face will radiate with the glory of God such that he has to wear a veil because people can't even look on Moses' face that's secondhand reflecting the glory of God. He's going to a place where you can hear, where you can encounter, where you can worship, where you can be with God. That sounds like exactly the place Elijah needs to go. He's had his mountaintop experience. He's had his low point. He's feeling betrayed and hurt by everybody. And so he goes to the mountain of God and sits in a cave. He's not praying. He's not worshipping. He, he can't carry a Bible, but he would have memorized an awful lot of the Old Testament scriptures off by heart. He's not reciting those and meditating upon them. He's not looking on the glory of God like Moses. He's in a cave. What is it about caves? You go to caves when you're feeling not safe, right? In fact, some of the prophets who are getting killed have been gone in hiding in caves. So maybe Elijah's hiding from Jezebel, except she's like two or three countries away now, and he's probably actually not in any danger on Mount Horeb. I think a cave is a place where when we feel unsafe, we don't have to worry about our back. We've got our back covered. The left, the right, the top, the bottom, they're all protected. They're not moving pieces. We just need to focus on the one place where danger might come from. And you can think of that in a positive way, but you might also think of it as tunnel vision. And I think that's what Elijah's doing in a cave. He's retelling the story of what's happened in a way that is self-appreciative, self-reinforcing, and critical of others. He's rehearsing a speech because now he's at the mountain of God and he anticipates he's going to meet God and he's got to have his little speech prepared. And now comes the question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Perhaps, why are you in the cave and not up on the mountain? Why are you not in Israel where you're meant to be a prophet? Why are you down here? 
there is this implied rebuke in the question. Whatever is in the question doesn't matter because Elijah has worked up his answer. He's had 40 days to stew over this and he's got some wording. He's memorized it now. You ever do that? You're angry at somebody, you've had a heated conversation and you think to yourself, if I could just say these perfect set of words, then they will fully understand why I'm right and they're wrong and that will completely resolve the situation. That's what Elijah's doing and we know that because God asks the question twice and he gives exactly the same answer, word for word, twice. To give him his credit, it's actually a pretty clever answer. What are you doing here, Elijah? I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Matt reminded us last week that when you see Lord in all caps, oh, uh, Nathan actually, uh, it's, it's the covenant name for God, right? So, um, I've been faithful to the covenants, God, but the Israelites... They have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah's saying three things. I'm the good guy. Everybody else is the bad guy. But he's also, without directly criticizing God, he's trying to provoke God. They've rejected your covenant. You've promised to be our God if we will be your people. Well, I've kept my end of the bargain, but not them. They're breaking your covenant, and then it gets progressively worse. Tearing down altars and putting to death your prophets. And now I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me too. And now that I've said my clever, crafted little statement, I can sit back in my cave because I've got the monkey on your back, God. It's your problem. And I want to watch and see how it is that you fix this. Good luck trying to play that game with God. (laughs) God says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And I take it that's an allusion to Mount Horeb and Moses. Moses gets to see the glory of God and to reflect the glory of God to God's people. And that is a high point in the life of Moses. And here is Elijah, what is potentially his high point. How does it unfold? A great and powerful wind goes past Moses while he's in this crevice. But God's not in the wind. Then an earthquake. But God's not in the earthquake. And then a fire. But God's not in the fire. And then a gentle whisper. This is an often quoted little part of 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 1 Kings 19. And it tends to be interpreted and applied as listening to God. And 
the way it's explained is we think that God's going to speak in really loud and audible and clear ways like earthquakes and thunder and fire and lightning and whatever else. And maybe sometimes he does, but often he doesn't. Often he just speaks in a gentle whisper. And the problem is we're not listening properly. We just need to quiet ourselves and slow down. And if we would but listen intently, we would hear the voice of God. Now, that may or may not be true. I don't think that's what's going on in this passage, though. Elijah's having no trouble hearing God. Go down to Horeb, okay. Eat, okay. What are you doing here? Here's my answer. There's no communication gap between God and Elijah. Nor is Elijah particularly upset with God because God isn't speaking clearly. That's just not what's at play here. What's at play is the fact that Elijah wants God to judge ungodliness, unfaithfulness, covenant-breaking. And God isn't judging like what Elijah thinks he should. So now we go back and we think wind, earthquakes, fire. Where have they been in the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and now into the Kings? They're all moments where God reveals his righteousness. So an earthquake and the ground opens up and a bunch of ungodly people are swallowed in the desert. Or there's fire or there's wind around moments of judgment. And so I take it that what God is saying to Elijah is, yes, I do judge. Sometimes with really clear, powerful, demonstrable events like wind, earthquake, fire. But I'm not doing it that at the moment. I'm actually restraining myself and choosing to judge with a gentle whisper. And so it is that Ahab remains on the throne and Jezebel at her side for another few years. So, Elijah got asked the question, gave his little speech. God actually tries to get him to reframe. All right, so I'm not judging the way you want me to. Have you got that? And then he asks the question again. And Elijah gives exactly the same speech. He's learnt nothing. And so God moves on. Go back the way you came. Retrace your steps. Undo them. And go back and do what a prophet is supposed to do. Anoint this king, and actually it's not even an Israeli king, it's a Gentile king. And then anoint another king, Jehu, in Israel, and then anoint a successor as prophet. And I will bring about justice and judgment in my time. Because this king's going to... Um, uh, judge, and then if some people escape, uh, this king, and if some people escape, this prophet. Yet, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. 
This is a nice inversion of Elijah's little pre-prepared speech. I'm the good guy, they're the bad guys. I've done the right thing. All of them have lost the plot. And God is saying, actually, not everybody's lost the plot. And those that still worship me do so because I've reserved them. It's only in my strength that anyone remains faithful. And he's reserved 7,000. A thousand is a multitude, and seven is a holy number, uh, a complete number. That's how many God has reserved. So let's pull this together. Here's Elijah, and perhaps he wants to force God's hand. And God honors that, and there's a mountaintop victory. And it's followed by opposition and trials. And at the lowest first hurdle, Elijah trips, asks to die, throws in the towel, and in the process demonstrates that he has misunderstood how God works, overrated himself as the faithful one, the solution guy and is feeling profoundly hurt and isolated from the people of God and then he goes and sits in a cave and in a tunnel vision way provokes God to somehow fix what he thinks is injustice the way that he wants God to fix it and God says I'll bring about justice at the volume I think is right. You just go back and do what it is you're supposed to do. Leave that up to me. And appoint some successes. And the kingdom will continue. I wonder, are there any parallels between your experience and Elijah's? Do you sometimes think things are going pear-shaped and you imagine some kind of a scenario that's binary that hopefully forces God's hand? And you tell yourself stories about how you're faithful and you create a little box in which God is going to behave in certain ways that vindicate you and demarcate you as different from all the other unfaithful people? And when there's some opposition, do you sit in a cave with tunnel vision, prepare a speech for God and then give it to him, and then sit back and just wait for him to act in the ways that you imagine are the only possible solution? Perhaps God is coming to you and saying, why are you here?
Why this tunnel-visioned cave that pigeonholes me, that misunderstands yourself, that blames everybody else and takes your hands off and waits for me to vindicate you? Is this the right place to be? Is this really the solution? God is God. You just get back to doing the task that God has called you to do and let God be God. Lord, we empathise at times with Elijah. That sense of frustration that we have, that things aren't going as well as what we want them to, that sense of disappointment when we look around us and we see a lack of faithfulness, when it feels like the forces of good aren't prevailing over the forces of evil, That's our experience from time to time and perhaps particularly at this time. And that's a dangerous place for us to be, God, because sometimes we want to put our hands on the wheel and we want to take control and try and force your hand. We want to interpret and imagine what's happening in ways that uh, make ourselves look good, make others look poor, and somehow leave all the responsibility up to you and absolve ourselves. God, if we have played that game, if we have told ourselves that story, we want to hear you ask us this morning, why are we here? There are other places we ought to be. There are other ways to interpret what's happening. There are other ways to imagine how we're a part of this puzzle. And there are other responsibilities that we ought to be putting our hand to. Jesus, we thank you that ultimately you are the victory. But as we live this side of your return, may we put our hand to the plough and not look back and trust in you, God. Amen.